This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's episode focuses on the John Birch Society, which uh, was quite well known, quite infamous in the 1960s and 70s, sort of fell off the radar screen, but has now become a more important subject of study and political analysis for our understanding of American democracy and the challenges American democracy faces today. Uh, The John Birch Society is a far right-wing group, uh, and uh, it's a group that um, has connections to the world that we deal with today. Uh, We're fortunate to have with us uh, a well-known historian who has written what I think is the best book on the John Birch Society and those who were a part of it and those who are connected to it one way or another. Uh, The book is titled Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. And the writer and historian and friend is uh, Matthew Dalek. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you so much for having me and for the kind introduction. Matt is a historian and professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies. He's the author of numerous books that I recommend to all of you. The first book of his that I read, which I think is the first book he wrote, is The Right Moment, Ronald Reagan's First Victory and the Decisive Turning Point in American Politics. Uh, This was actually one of the first really serious studies of Reagan's influence on American politics from a historical perspective. Um, recently, uh, Matt published about five, six years ago, uh, a really important book on the origins of homeland security, how we think about homeland security in our society. It's called Defenseless Under the Night, the Franklin Roosevelt Years and the Origins of Homeland Security, really important for those interested in understanding how we conceive of homeland security in our society. And then most recently, as I already said, uh, he's published just a few weeks ago, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. Uh, Matt also publishes frequently in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Politico, and many, many other publications. Uh, So he's not only a scholar of the past, but an observer, a keen observer, of the present. And that's, I think, one of the strengths of his book and one of the strengths of what we'll be able to talk with him about today as we think about who the John Birchers were, where this far-right radical group came from, and what effect it had uh, on and continues to have on our democracy. Uh, Before we turn to our discussion with Matt, though, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, What's the title of your poem today? L'chaim. Uh, is that the title of your poem, or are you just wishing That's well? the title of the poem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. Quite cold and quiet, they are marching past the gates, crowding into subway cars and walking past the windows of department stores. The scene is stagnant, though they move together in some jagged step, as if ice were tearing at their mustaches and frost turning their long beards gray. Greybeards, they have forgotten whence they came, that they too once smiled at the old men in their trench coats, counting their steps and forgetting to look at the sun. There is a certain banal audacity in this little charade of life, in the slow turn of revolving doors, their grim faces reminiscent of the revolver that stared me awake on one of those grim deportation nights, or the small whip of fire that consummates their perverse 
burning cross bacchanals. Look me in the eyes. I will give you a real smile, because I know someday there really will be ice in their beards, one of those cold, eternal, nothing freezes that bring even kings to their knees. May it be so. And together we'll go dancing on their frosty lawns, singing some ditty about roses or the beginning of love. There's quite a lot you've packed into that poem, Zachary. What is it about? I think it's about trying to confront uh, one of the seeming paradoxes of the John Birch Society and of the far right uh, in the mid-20th century in the United States, which is how they both embraced uh, a sort of very conservative kind of American conformity in a post-war sense, but then also politically were these violent radicals yeah. and trying to come to terms with how someone can both be, uh, as we stereotypically think, a sort of typical suburban American, a corporate office worker, but also have this violent and 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 terribly hateful streak at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a great observation and it's at the center of, of your book, Matt. Uh, your reaction? It's, it's a wonderful poem. Uh, I would love you to, to send it to me. I mean, it, it really captures, and, and I love your analysis of it. I mean, it really is one of the, um, one of the themes of the book and, and frankly, one of the uh, ideas that, that, uh, was so interesting to me as I did my research, which is that, you know, it's a puzzle, right? How can, as I say, these colossi men, the founders, especially who bestriding the world's most dynamic economy, how can they look at the country that, you know, basically gave them so much and say, you know, there are enemies who are overrunning us and, and everything here is kind of twisted and distorted from within. And yet, you know, look how successful and powerful we are. And so um, that, that, that tension uh, is really, it is a paradox, and, um, and I try to address it in the book. And you use this phrase from the very beginning, uh, radical conservatives or conservative radicalism. I think you use it both ways. Uh, those seem like contradictory terms, don't they? Well, they do. Uh, <laughs> although, uh, you know, it depends, I guess, on what what one what uh, means by a conservative, right? What is, uh, and, and what does radical mean? Um, you know, conservative, I, you know, at least in a kind of mid 20th century context for a lot of conservatives did not necessarily mean conserving, did not mean conserving, let's say, uh, the welfare state, or did not mean necessarily conserving, you know, U.S. foreign policy, as it was defined in World War II or the early Cold War. It meant um, upending, right? Upend and so, uh, but of course, uh, the Birchers themselves uh, one of the reasons that I say that they were radical or ultra conservative is that they had uh, uh, believed in conspiracy theories, uh, explicit racism, an isolationism, a kind of hearkening back to early 20th century, uh, the old right, and uh, a more apocalyptic, violent mode of politics. And those things, and so their beliefs were really uh, on the fringe and, and put them in a, a pretty radical place. Um, for those young listeners of ours, or, or perhaps older listeners as well, who might have no idea what the John Birch Society is, uh, where did this group come from and, and what did they become? Uh, yes, absolutely. So the Birchers, uh, as big as they were in the 1960s, a kind of household name, you know, nowadays, right, um, they still exist, but, you know, they're kind of a sh shadow of their former selves. So um, the Birchers were founded in December of 1958 by a former candy manufacturer uh, named Robert Welch. 
Uh, and uh, they were named after an evangelist uh, turned army intelligence officer who was killed by Mao's communist forces uh, 10 days after the end of World War II. He was seen as uh, this guy, John Birch, seen as the, the first victim of uh, World War III. And um, the society uh, basically uh, developed chapters, 20 person capped at 20 people. Um, they started to spread all around the country and they were uh, devoted to, at least officially, educating the masses, the American public, about the internal threat of communists that, according to at least the Birch leaders, had begun to overrun America's institutions and was 60 or 70 percent on the way toward complete domination of American life. So uh, so what what was it that attracted uh, people to this new organization founded by a candy manufacturer? And uh, what did they do as they built this organization? Well, one thing that attracted the kind of elites, the industrialists and the very wealthy people who joined was that they knew Robert Welch. They knew people in the National Association of Manufacturers. They shared uh, a, a, a hatred of the New Deal, a hatred in some of the cultural directions of American life, and a sense that the U.S. Um, should not have been involved in World War II or had lost the peace um, or had lost basically the war against the communists. So they shared those kinds of uh, personal and ideological sensibilities. For a lot of other Americans, sort of upwardly mobile suburban uh, professionals. Um, as one uh, uh, Bircher said, the Birch Society is the, quote, answer to every anti-communist prayer. What did he mean by that? Well, uh, he meant, I think, that the society enabled people to take action in their communities against the communist menace. So instead of just talking about communism instead of just um, uh, lamenting that you know communists and, and their allies had made inroads, the society allowed people to act. And, um, and in fact, uh, Robert Welch and the Birch Society, the headquarters, one of the innovative things they did is to give people, give members um, opportunities to go out in their community and take over a school board. Or um, uh, or a PTA, or you know, protest, uh, uh, or a warn, or put stickers up. Uh, so um, people felt empowered, right? They felt like they could actually do something, and that was one of the, I think, attractions. And and this is the point, actually, very early in your book, Matt, where the parallels to today uh, just just jump out. Uh, before we get into that, in terms of tactics and goals and activism. How many people at the height of the Birch movement, how many people belong to this organization? The best estimates are 60 to 100,000 members uh, in the mid-1960s, 64, 65, around the time of Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign and shortly thereafter. Um, but it's, you know, it's been hard for historians and, and contemporaries uh, at the time to get a real handle on the numbers because... You know, the society was uh, quite uh, secretive about its membership. The membership was, I think, constantly in flux. As I said before, they had these small chapters, so it was really hard to track. You know who was a member, who wasn't. Um, but but it gives you a sense. You know, sixty to one hundred thousand. 
not that many in a, a country with more than 100, uh, well over 100 million people uh, at the time. Um, but as I argue, uh, you know, they demonstrated that 100,000 or 60,000 of members who were uh, devoted to a cause, who were willing to kind of volunteer their time, put themselves and their money on the line, uh, could have an outsized impact uh, on uh, politics and, and on political debate. Uh, in a way that maybe millions of voters could not. I think, Matt, this is one of the real insights in your book, one of the many contributions, but the one that really stuck with me is how they could have so much influence yet have such a small, relatively small number of core members. And you remind us in the book of a historical episode that we've largely forgotten, even as historians, which is the impeach Earl Warren movement, which I think is one of these moments that encapsulates the influence of a small extreme group. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, it's such an interesting moment. So one of the Birch Societies, uh, so the Birch Society actually uh, very early on set up front groups. And the reason they did that was to kind of hide their tracks so as to uh, not let the communists, that was their thinking, right? Not let the communists know who was behind a particular action. And Impeach Earl Warren was one of the earliest in the early 1960s uh, acts that they undertook. Um, but it was arguably the most effective or one of the most effective. And what they did was is essentially launch a campaign using billboards. They erected billboards, I think, all across the country or many parts of the country. A lot of people did it at the local uh, chapter level. I think I have one uh, Birch member who you know, helped fund 20 of these billboards. And these became a kind of iconic image um, of the time. Because um, people saw them, right? Remember, there was no social media in the early 1960s. And so, you know, people would see these billboards. It was talked about. And the idea of impeaching Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the United States, who was considered a, a giant, right, in, uh, in American politics. He was governor of California earlier uh, and, and a giant uh, in, in the judicial system um, was really radical. And uh, even some conservatives said, you know, that's going too far. Um, the other point I'll make about it, though, is that what was kind of innovative about it, too, is that impeach Earl Warren. Well, what did that mean? Well, for some Birchers and Birch supporters, it meant Brown versus Board of Education. It meant that Warren deserved to be impeached because he had trampled on states' rights and he had um, basically uh, destroyed what they called the, the, the right, the freedom to uh, segregate uh, uh, by race in their states, in their towns. But to other people also, it meant um, they did not like Warren's uh, jurisprudence on banning prayer in schools, um, giving rights to criminal defendants, um, all of the kind of what we, what we think of today as these sort of cultural hot button issues. And, um, and Rupesh Earl Warren could encompass all of these pieces. And some were motivated by one piece and others another. And it really was, a, I think, a powerful and memorable. And, and also Warren himself apparently was, um, was not a fan of this, of this movement. Um, one of the, whenever I think of the John Birch Society I, and, and of the impeach uh, Earl Warren movement, um, I think of the scene in Slaughterhouse-Five, um, the great novel of the 60s, in which the, the protagonist uh, Billy Pilgrim, uh, who who has seen the horrors of World War II, drives around with bumper stickers supporting the John Birch Society and the Impeach 
oral Warren movement. In what sense do you think that the society is born out of a unique mindset of the World War II generation and of that period post-war? And in what sense do you think maybe there are parallels between that generation or that moment and our own today. And I just have to say, I love anytime we can bring Kurt Vonnegut into the yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's such a, a great question. And it's so interesting too, because I read Slaughterhouse-Five many years ago, but I'd forgotten, I didn't remember that uh, there was a Birch Society uh, reference or a Birch character in there. Um, the first thing I'll say is that it evokes uh, the extent to which in the 1960s, the Birchers penetrated the popular culture. And Jeremy, earlier you had asked too about, well, 60 to 100,000, not that many, but yet they had this huge impact. Well, you know, people knew about them, right? Dr. Strangelove, you know, one of the characters in there, Bob Dylan did a song talking John Birch paranoid blues. So, um, you know, Slaughterhouse-Five. So, you know, you see the way in which it became like a a, a cultural a trope um, and uh, and both to be, be made fun of, but also to uh, to be supported. Um, in terms of the post, you know, war generation or the World War II generation, um, look, I think one point to make is that, you know, and as historians have, have argued for a long time, you know, the 1950s were not exactly this harmonious uh, consensus uh, cultural uh, era. There was no real hegemony um, uh, within American society. There were deep uh, divisions. And, you know, you see the Birchers, I think, coming out of, um, not just World War II, but also the New Deal and, frankly, the Progressive Era, if we're going to go back further. And they have a sense of uh, a lost America, right, an America that had, that had vanished. And it had vanished in part because of the growth of the welfare state, the encroachment, as they saw it, of, of civil rights, judicial intervention and overreach. And um, and also the 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 international liberal internationalism, right? American engagement in the world. You know, one of their their biggest slogans was "Get the U.S. out of the U.N." Well, you know that was born out of uh, the the World War II, of course, and and the immediate post World War II era. So, um, so I think it's a really perceptive question because they really were born uh, in a sense, and they were propelled by the sense that there had been decades of really big changes in the structure of, of American life, American politics, but also America's role in the world, and that those changes were fundamentally uh, flawed and actually um, alien, right? That they were alien to the Constitution, alien to the country. You know, Birchers had a slogan uh, that's apropos uh, of, your, of your podcast, which is, uh, we're a democracy, we're a republic, not a democracy. Let's keep it that way, and um, and, and that I think evokes uh, uh, some of their uh, mission. Um, I, I can talk a little bit about you know comparisons to today, but but well, I, I want there. there's such an obvious one there, of course, with uh, certain um, individuals, for example, uh, Senator Mike Lee from Utah today, who's made exactly the word you used would would be very familiar to him that we're a republic, not a democracy. But before we get to that, I, I want to get at the kind of root issue that you you really address so well in the book, um, and you do it by evoking, of course, a historian that so many of us revere, who was writing at this time, Richard Hofstadter. And uh, he, of course, famously wrote about status anxiety and a paranoid style in American history. Um, is that what this is? Is this part of a sort of long-term American 
um, affiliation or uh, ascription to uh, paranoia, conspiracy, a sense that those who don't feel they're controlling power, that they use conspiracy to delegitimize those who are using power in different ways? Um, I think that maybe that's one aspect of, of the book and kind of some of the themes of the book. I mean, Hofstetter, obviously, I mean, Hofstetter has to inform uh, whether one agrees or disagrees with him. He, you know, he's really seminal and he informs anyone's writing about the, the modern uh, American right. I tend to shy away from the use of the word paranoid uh, in the book because, well, it's clinical and also it, it, it's pejorative. Um, and um, what I what I also resist is trying to define the Birchers primarily through conspiracy theories, because at the time they were known for the well, Robert Welch's the founders' theory that Dwight Eisenhower was a dedicated agent of the communist conspiracy, and um, and that's in a way or fluoridation in the water supply was a communist plot. But you know, as I argue in the book, the Birchers also tapped into other ideas now. Now, conspiracies sometimes were woven through them, but not always, right? Um, sex education in the schools. Um, what was what were students learning? What were the books that were on offer uh, in the libraries? Um, uh, isolationism, uh, uh, a more explicit form of, of racism uh, than uh, a lot of political actors at the time were uh, uh, used. And so... Um, you know, and again, this more apocalyptic mode of politics. So conspiracy theories were uh, were uh, an element of it. And um, but I do think that it, it goes beyond that and that it has, you know, and, and Jeremy, this, of course, you know, intersects with your work as well. Right. These sort of much deeper roots um, in uh, in American history and uh, and a kind of, you know, concerns about sovereignty and nativism uh, and uh, and as I said, isolationism. That uh, and you know I think the Birchers kind of captured uh, uh, that as well. So um, so I, you know I'll just say I don't want to reduce it right to a kind of paranoid conspiratorial uh, style. Right. No, it's it's obviously a cocktail of many things, and of course, and you talk about this in the book, white supremacy is part of that too. Um, so one of the traditional things historians and before historians, journalists at the time wrote about uh, were the ways in which it appeared that leading uh, Republican Party figures, Goldwater, uh, but certainly also Ronald Reagan, uh, leading party intellectual William F. Buckley, it appeared on the surface that they were separating themselves uh, from the John Birch Society. Um, most of them, as you describe in the book, at one moment or another, criticized the leaders of the party, particularly uh, Robert Welch. Uh, but you argue in the book uh, pretty forcefully that in fact, um, they continued these Republican Party leaders to try to bring Birchers into the fold, and they tried not to alienate them. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Well, I try to capture in the book what I see as a, a, a tension within the conservative coalition. So just to back up, right, I argue that there is a, um, a significant dividing line between these ultra-conservative fringe Bircher types and mainstream conservatives, the electorally successful figures actually ranging from Eisenhower to Goldwater and Reagan, uh, and that that uh, line was uh, uh, ideological and stylistic, and that they were actually uh, antagonistic to one another oftentimes, right? That, you know, the Birchers and then their successors often distrusted and felt frustrated by 
uh, these, these governing conservatives. And I try to capture that dynamic. At the same time, I say, well, um, a lot of these uh, conservative figures, we're talking about um, uh, maybe the Bushes, right? Father and son, Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, even Bob Dole. At times, especially during their campaigns, they did, they did send signals to um, what I call these successors to the Birch movement. Uh, they sent signals that they were with them, right? That they were on their side, that they were going to champion uh, their agendas. And, uh, and yet, once they got into office, they often governed in a way that frustrated the fringe's most insistent demands. Uh, immigration, for example, uh, uh, internationalism, right? Interventionism in, uh, in, in wars, uh, 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 free trade, um, conspiracy theories, right? You know, for the most part, people like Reagan um, did not govern in any of those ways. And in fact, you know, not just the Birchers, but, um, but a lot of their, what I call their successors, uh, were very upset with Ronald Reagan, especially in his second term. They looked at him as a sellout and a traitor. And as one Bircher said, and I think I quote him in the book, uh, he said, you know, a true Bircher never really trusted Ronald Reagan. Uh, and, uh, and they viewed him really ultimately as part of the problem. And so, um, so I think it was a, a kind of tense dynamic, but, but I think it's also a mistake to lump together these electoral conservative Republicans um, and, uh, and the more fringier uh, uh, people. Right. But I think what, resonate, what resonated with me, at least, uh, were the ways in which you discuss how uh, members of the party at the leadership level, who, who were disgusted by a lot of what the uh, Birch Society did, particularly those who were disgusted by their attacks on Dwight Eisenhower, for example, nonetheless tried to ride that horse, right? Tried to still appeal to them and not renounce them. And and I, I underline this in my book because it resonates so much with what we saw in Charlottesville in recent years and elsewhere. Repeatedly, you have uh, Barry Goldwater, Republican presidential candidate, William F. Buckley, publisher of the National Review, Ronald Reagan, saying that in spite of the problems of the leaders, the Birchers still had some good people. They were still nice people, just as uh, Donald Trump said in Charlottesville that that you know they were good people on both sides, right? Um, yeah, th- that that's very disconcerting to read, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, that's a really um, yeah. The analogy is really powerful as you're describing it. Um, that's true. I mean, uh, look, you know, if we go back, right? Richard Nixon, uh, former vice president, went back to California, ran for governor. And very forcefully denounced the Birchers. Well, what happened to him? He got primaried by a guy named Joe Shell, who took about a third of the primary vote, was not a Bircher, but but won the support of a lot of Birchers who were powerful in Southern California. And that really damaged Nixon. So Goldwater came along um, and had some critical things to say about Robert Welch, knew him, he was a problem. But as you said, right, he sort of said, you know, I know a lot of Birchers and they're fine people. Um, Reagan in 66, four years after Nixon, kind of split the baby right after Glowwater's uh, landslide defeat. He you know, issued a statement. He said, you know, Welch's theories basically about Eisenhower, I reject those. Um, but, you know, if a Bircher supports me, right, or they're, they're buying my philosophy, not the other way around. Um, so, you know, that is true, right, that they did. Although, you know, there were times, I mean, I don't want to go too far out here, but there were times um, when uh, uh, conservatives, especially in office, did, um, you know, they did not toe the Birch line, right? Um, you know, 
even Ronald Reagan, for example, and George W. Bush, right? They signed renewals of the Voting Rights uh, Act or civil rights laws. They, uh, uh, um, you know, when Reagan said, well, you know, Martin Luther King will know in 25 years if he was a communist. Well, he had to backtrack and he apologized for that. He signed um, the law uh, uh, for reparations to Japanese Americans interned uh, during World War II. So, you know, you can go on down or George W. Bush, for example. You know, there were a number of instances in which major uh, conservative presidents and other officials uh, governed in ways that were not in sync with the Birch program or, and even on a lot of these culture war issues, you know, someone like Reagan or George H.W. Bush, they would somewhat cynically, especially for a Bush senior, they would uh, go to Jerry Falwell's moral majority groups and they would say, you know, I support a ban on abortion or um, I'm going to, you know, pass a, a, let's do a constitutional amendment banning uh, burning of the flag or restoring prayer in school, but they never were able to get it done. And, um, and, you know, you see the ways in which uh, they govern uh, in ways that, uh, you know, these, a lot of the elements of the fringe did not support. And certainly, you know, when George W. Bush in his second term, when things went south for, uh, for his presidency and he lost popularity, um, you know, you see people like Mick Mulvaney and, um, and Sarah Palin and Donald Trump. Uh, in a sense, who are rejecting him and rejecting and repudiating many of his policies and Rush Limbaugh. What do you think it, then is the long-term legacy of the Birchers in our contemporary politics? Well, I argue that um, they bequeathed, and, and they were not the only ones, of course, and, and there were um, you know groups in the 1930s, you know, as Father Coughlin or America First, right? Um, and, and groups, obviously, uh, before that as well. Um, but the, the Birchers helped to update and sustain and forge uh, what I describe as this alternative political tradition on the far right. And that even as the Birch Society, as an organization, peters out, right? It becomes a, basically a shadow of its old self by the early 1970s. Um, and it's a real epithet uh, at that time. But some of those individuals in the society, and more, even more importantly, the ideas, um, as I've said before, isolationism, explicit racism, uh, 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 concerns about sovereignty uh, that we would see make a comeback, um, uh, 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 this conspiracy theories, and again, this more apocalyptic mode of politics, the idea that the enemy is within, those ideas, that set of ideas on the far right, I think that, and also some of the hardline culture war issues as well, those ideas kind of bubbled along, right? They were picked up by uh, what I argue are these even cannier successors. And and there are a lot of other reasons why, you know, uh, the far right sort of uh, makes a, a comeback. And, and of course, it's not simply the birth society transferred to 2016, for example, um, but there was this kind of ideological legacy and even if, you know, someone like a Donald Trump or a Sarah Palin had never heard of the Birch Society, or if they had, they didn't know much about it, um, they picked up on, very shrewdly in a way, on a lot of the ideas that Birchers and their successors had, uh, had sustained. 
Right. So when you say an alternative political tradition, again, this is in some ways a reference to Hofstadter and others who wrote about inherited American traditions. We think of a Jeffersonian tradition, a Hamiltonian tradition. Uh, your argument, and I think it's a powerful one, is that there is this far-right tradition in, in American history and that someone like Donald Trump doesn't have to be well-read in it to be able to grab onto it and use words that seem legitimate because they are traditional, correct? Exactly. I mean, that's extremely uh, well put. And, uh, you know, Zachary, uh, in his poem, I think, evoked this as well. That, And this is one of the points I'm trying to make in the book, that this is a deeply American phenomenon. And it's not just the conspiracy theories, right? It goes beyond that. Uh, and, and because in the 1960s, the criticism, one of the criticisms lodged at the Birchers uh, was that they were alien. Right. As, as I think one senator at the time said, they're a weird presence in America. And, you know, my argument is, no, actually, they're not. They're deeply they're kind of endemic to the country and to its uh, to its traditions. Um, they're not necessarily the majority of the country, but they're a powerful tradition. Um, and I think it's a tradition that since especially the New Deal and then the Great Society and Civil Rights Movement, that many people have thought, many, especially liberals, but also some conservatives too, a tradition had thought had really just been marginalized, right? It was not um, possible to, there's, there's no electoral support. And, and that's part, partly why a lot of conservative figures thought that, you know, if you do what Trump did and you call uh, uh, neo-Nazis fine people, um, as Trump did essentially, that you cannot you know, you're not going to be elected. And, um, and so that assumption, of course, proved incorrect. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and here we are. It, it's stunning. And I just want to lay this out because I didn't understand this till I read your book. And I think it's why people who want to understand today's politics need to read your book, Matt. Uh, just the number of parallels. And they're, they're not parallels because Donald Trump went back, you know, his supporters went back to you know look at the 1960s and 70s as you have so carefully in your research, but because these arguments were out there, they were discredited, but at the same time, they were available to be used in other moments when they could be made to seem logical and seem less outrageous. So you talk, for instance, at the, at the parallels between the um, criticisms of uh, Tony Fauci and the criticisms of vaccines and the parallels with the uh, Bircher criticism of fluorinated water and, yeah. and all the lies that were told about that. Uh, immigration issues, prayer in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, the, you have a number of lines where they, Birchers are arguing for uh, legislation to protect and in some ways almost require prayer in schools and then look at the legislation in, in my state of Texas right now. It's almost, almost word for word, Matt. Yeah, well, I mean, or Florida, right, for that matter, right? I mean, some of the stuff about out banning uh, uh, the teach certain teachings, right? Progressive teachings, the idea that, you know, these teachings are not just bad for kids, but you're actually indoctrinating them with a, a socialistic, woke uh, 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 ideas, right? I mean, as, as contemporaries would put it. Well, that's a similar argument to what was, uh, what the Birchers made uh, in the 1960s. And, you know, your point, I think, is exactly right. You know, someone like Trump does not have to be doesn't have to be a historian of the far right. I mean, you know, the birtherism 
uh, uh, conspiracy theory, right? That, that somehow Barack Obama was not born in the United States and Ill, ineligible to be president, that he was an alien uh, to the short. Well, you know, that there were a lot of other people on the far right who were also pushing that as well. You know, Trump is very entrepreneurial. And I think he's and he's very savvy politically. And he has picked up on and kind of tapped into a lot of ideas that have been simmering uh, uh, on the far right for uh, for for decades. So one of the purposes of our podcast, Matt, and I know one of the purposes of, of your book, one of the, the things you and I share as historians is that we believe that history is useful. Uh, it's not a roadmap for the future, um, but it gives us a better sense of the right questions to ask and of some of the things we need to consider in our in our approach to policy and our approach to social development. Um, what should we do going forward then, uh, based on this history? This this clearly indicates that the challenges to our democracy today are not just about Donald Trump or just about Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's something deeper here. So what what are the implications of that knowledge for thinking about protecting democracy today? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I think first, just an appreciation that the United States has faced anti-democratic movements in the past and that these movements may not have been mainstream in the way that they are today, um, but that it is a, a kind of enduring part, right, of American life. And having that appreciation in and of itself, I think, is a little bit, um, I don't know if reassuring is the, is the right word, um, but it does put in perspective, right, that as you said uh, so well, Jeremy, that, you know, Trump is not a sui generis, right, that, that we have seen um, um, these kinds of uh, challenges before. Um, the other element, I think, and, you know, it's not quite a lesson because our times are so much different from the 1960s and 70s, but it is worth thinking about. And I, I actually wrote an article in the Atlantic uh, magazine about this, which is, um, you know, how do far right organizations and far right movements get constrained? Right. The Birch ideas uh, never died, but the Birch Society did fade. As I said earlier, right, it faded as a as an organization and as a movement by certainly by the early uh, uh, to mid 1970s. Well, how did that happen? A couple things. One is uh, American institutions, um, uh, government institutions, mass media, but also um, civic society, right? Uh, the NAACP, Americans for Democratic Action. Most importantly, the Anti-Defamation uh, League. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of folks, a lot of groups, uh, work to constrain the Birchers to really push them out in the fringes to make them uh, toxic in the political culture. The other point I would make uh, is that the Birch Society, I argue, especially in the late '60s, self-combusted because. Its conspiracy theories in particular drew more violent and more bigoted members to the ranks. There was internal dissent, internecine uh, uh, warfare, and they also had some financial problems. And it was a very hard movement to sustain. Um, it became incredibly fractious. And, um, you know, and it seemed more and more toxic, even to some of its own, own members. Um, so uh, it's not a prescription per se. But it is worth thinking about, um, you know, look, maybe there are elements of MAGA that, you know, Trump's dinner, for example, with Nick Fuentes and, uh, and, and Yee, the rapper, uh, the anti-Semite, the white supremacist uh, dinner that he had a few months ago. Um, you know, there is a way in which I think Trump 
uh, and MAGA has descended. And, and, you know, again, you don't want to make predictions, but, um, but one can see this kind of um, radicalization and descending uh, that uh, occurred. And, you know, that is, a, I think, a, a note, a faint note, but a note of hope. Absolutely. And I think uh, just to underline uh, one of the many uh, excellent points you just made, Matt, I think for me, one of the big takeaways from your research and your writing is how important uh, organizations that care about democracy, that care about inclusion, grassroots organizations, how important they are. One of the heroic organizations in your book uh, is the Anti-Defamation League, known to many as the ADL. Uh, I don't want to give away the whole book, but I encourage those uh, who are interested to read those sections of the book where you talk about a, a number of measures, including spying undertaken by these organizations uh, to help federal authorities and help state authorities uh, deal with the, the threats of hatred and violence. Um, and there's a lot to learn from that, I think. I, I think that's exactly right. And the thing is, too, in mid-20th century America, even in the 1960s, you know, J. Edgar Hoover and others in law enforcement were more interested in trying to ferret out alleged communists in American society, they were less interested in um, going after, you know, far right uh, groups that may have uh, uh, promoted racism and anti-Semitism. And so it was even more important then for a group like the ADL to um, to fill that gap. Right. Because it was a real void. Um, and today, I, I think, fortunately, uh, at least under the Biden administration, for example, we have seen a Justice Department that has taken uh, white supremacy and neo-Nazis and those threats seriously after January 6th, of course. And, um, and you know, and there are a lot of uh, insurrectionists who are sitting in jail right now. Absolutely. I think about a thousand of them have been yeah. prosecuted. Um, Zachary, uh, you've listened to this conversation. You've thought deeply about this, uh, especially since you read Kurt Vonnegut years ago. Um, and your generation, I know, uh, often feels... Um, concerned and maybe even despondent about some of these issues that we see around us, especially as we see states like Texas and Florida also passing legislation that looks to, in some ways, bring some of these birch ideas into into law even. Um, what do you take from this conversation? Do you see optimistic roads forward here? I do. I, I think that um, one thing that this moment has done for, this moment in our politics has done for young people is it has laid bare these long threads of of far right hatred and, and bigotry in American history, um, and and what I think makes that moment in Slaughterhouse Five so powerful is the irony that a a man who had lived through the dehumanizing trauma of 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 modern warfare could do the same thing and be so virulently anti communist only a few decades later. And I think one of the lessons that we can draw from this history and that story is that we who have lived not necessarily through comparable trauma, but through a lot of dehumanizing trauma and political strife need to come out of this moment committed to something different, not to a further extreme. Right. And, and that that's possible, right? Exactly. Because, you know, Matt covers this so well. Uh, there is uh, the infamous General Edwin Walker. And we, if we want parallels, he's a parallel to Michael Flynn today, a mm -hmm. uh, military hero who who actually becomes a, a, a fascist. And, uh, and and so I think your point, Zachary, is really well taken uh, on this. Matt, are you optimistic that we can learn these lessons? I, I mean, Zachary, I, I think your point is uh, really powerful. And, um, you know, thinking about trauma 
but then what comes out on the other side. Um, what gives me uh, a hope or optimism uh, is um, the, the grassroots and kind of organic activism, especially among young people, whether it's March for Our Lives um, and the students at Parkland or, uh, uh, you know, people uh, in support of voting rights, all the people who have gone out to vote uh, in uh, the last uh, three national uh, elections. Um, you know, on the Dobbs decision and the reaction to that um, and these referendums that we've seen in even conservative states, right, where people are trying to define freedom uh, as uh, the right to, to, to choose, right, if, if a woman wants to get an abortion. So um, I, I guess I am optimistic that democracy is uh, incredibly fragile at this moment, as we've seen, and, and actually is a bit broken in many uh, respects. Uh, but it is also resilient as well. And I think it's that kind of tension and, um, and may, may, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, who knows, maybe it will be seen as stronger to Zachary's point uh, because of the moment that we are living through now. I don't know, you know, that's, that's maybe Pollyannish, um, but it's not inconceivable. Well, I think what your research shows, uh, Matt, and this is true actually throughout all, all three of your books, but particularly uh, your work on the Birchers, which is that uh, American democracy has enormous capacity to learn and react. We don't always see that on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but just as the ADL and the FBI and elements of American politics in the 1970s learned to discredit and in some ways uh, – eliminate the Birchers as a major political force, uh, that can happen again. Uh, and and the, the craziness, uh, the hate that we see in our politics that comes often from small numbers of people who are amplifying their voices, uh, there are things we can do about that. And I, I think you give us a lot to think about and you give us a great example of exactly what our podcast is about each week, uh, which is studying the past, learning from the past, not as a recipe for the future, but as an inspiration for new creativity in our politics today. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. This was uh, such a wonderful conversation. And thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Zach. Your questions were uh, terrific. So it's great to be here. And, and Zachary, thank you for your inspiring poem, L'Chaim, uh, with a great title also. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.